Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. This is one of four regionally focused episodes on what patients want in HIV treatment and prevention. This episode features a conversation between Andrew Tan and Dr. Iskander Azwa from Malaysia. Andrew is the president of the Kuala Lumpur AIDS Support Services Society, and Iskander is an ID physician and professor at the University of Malay in Kuala Lumpur. In this episode, they'll discuss some of the barriers to genuinely patient-centered HIV care in Malaysia and the surrounding regions of Asia and Asia Pacific, and offer calls to action for healthcare professionals and advocates for responding to patient preferences. For the full online educational program, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Andrew and Iskander have to say. So good morning. Hi, I'm Andrew. It's great to have you on this podcast. I'm really giving patients perspectives on what some of the key challenges and barriers to patients and persons living with HIV care in terms of treatment and prevention. Um, just to give you a bit of background and to the listeners, I'm joined here today with Andrew, who is a huge patient advocate and a person living with HIV in Malaysia. And uh, I am an ID physician uh, and I work with uh, people living with HIV and also a huge advocate um, for HIV prevention and treatment and care um, within the region. So Andrew, I think um, let's just um, get down to business and probably just start thinking about um, some of the issues um, pertinent to this part of the world uh, and, and, and barriers in relation to um, patients engaging care and treatment. Good morning. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, my name is Andrew. Thanks, Prof, for the introduction. Um, my name is Andrew, and I volunteer with an organization called Kuala Lumpur AIDS Support Services Society in Malaysia. And our main focus is on treatment, uh, care, and support. Uh, so we look at things like uh, uh, treatment, uh, adherence, compliance. And uh, over the past uh, few years, we have been venturing into prevention and testing as well uh, from my grant, uh, some of the funders. So uh, right now we run the gamut of uh, prevention, testing, treatment, care and support. But my personal uh, passion right now is actually on treatment literacy uh, to help patients understand a bit better about uh, treatment and also why is it important to take their medication on time. So it's very basic and it's very experiential learning, very uh, lowest common denominator so that uh, it can be easily understood by the different languages that we have in Malaysia. And uh, that's uh, me in a nutshell. 
Also, I wanted to mention part of your treatment literacy programs. Um, you know, it'd be interesting if you could also mention how much um, uh, U equals U is um, discussed, and uh, because in a way it also gels very nicely with with um, in trying to increase um, engagement uh, into care. And you know, I think personally, from my perspective, um, I think um, although it's been talked about uh, in in depth for many many years now. I think our our doctors in general have a have a good understanding of it. Um, I think they're fairly proactive in discussing it with patients at every level. You know, at the point of diagnosis, um, at time of follow up, at, you know, in discussions around wanting to have children in uh, HIV, so different relationships um, uh, at the time of uh, a crisis. You know, and I think it's often brought up, and we often uh, have a responsibility to remind patients that you know of 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 the power of uh, being undetectable and how that is um, likely to lead to um, unlikely to lead not just unlikely it will not lead to any transmissions of HIV and that changes everything I think in 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 terms of access to care in terms of stigma in terms of increasing adherence um, to treatment uh, in terms of um, many many things so maybe you could just add your thoughts to um, both patient-centered care and, and some of your discussions around you equals to you and your treatment literacy programs over the years I've seen the rhetoric from oh PLHIV should not have children and the conversation around it over the years and how it evolved with the advent of you equals you is is amazing because it actually gives patients hope because we have many patients, especially in an Asian setting, where uh, the many of our clients are come from families where they are the only son, and the pressure to have children to carry on the family name that sort of cultural pressure still exists. It still is very prevalent uh, in in this country, and. Families expect people to get married, to have children. So when the initial talk of a person living with HIV should not have children, it puts them in this dilemma of how do I have satisfy my, my family but uh, desire to have grandchildren. But at the same time, how do I protect my partner? And you equals you gives them the opportunity to to look at things like that, to look at the future, to think that life can still go on and uh, and not to have the guilt of infecting someone because we know how it feels when someone has passed the virus to us. So I think the question right now is because we, in Malaysia, we're dealing with different languages. So how do we translate you equals you into the four main languages that we use in Malaysia. How do we use that information? Because we are very lucky in Malaysia. A lot of doctors have already uh, are on board with the, the, the concept of U equals U. I do know that uh, with my, in my conversations with many of my counterparts in other countries, uh, some of the, them are having trouble trying to convince the doctors to even subscribe to this. And and it's it's a pity because this is actually another piece of the arsenal 
that we have to keep people on treatment because when you give them hope that uh, that, they, that is so important. But one of the things that I realized over the years is that the women lack that access to a lot of care and support because women tend to assume uh, the responsibilities of taking care of the family, whether it's the elderly parents or whether it's their, their, their husbands, children. So they have less access to, uh, to, to, to actually have time to actually sit down and talk about the issues. And, and I think that's, some, that's one thing that we can do a lot better. I think we have to focus on how to make sure that women have access to all the support systems that they do need uh, to keep them sane, literally. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I think that's that's a, a population that certainly needs um, uh, a bit more um, uh, help with excess. And 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 you know, um, some of the some of the um, issues with regards to barriers regarding engagement. Now, you know, we mentioned treatment literacy and education, um, uh, socioeconomic status, um, and 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 use of peer support workers potentially could be used in that setting, um, essentially to help. Uh, women engage in care uh, better as such. We realized that the, the women actually, at that point in time, had difficulty in getting engaged uh, to attend uh, workshops and, and things like that. So what we did was we actually managed to connect a few of them. Uh, right now, we have uh, at least 10 of them on, uh, on WhatsApp uh, in a group, a chat group. and. Because they agreed to to join together, we we started them on on uh, uh, a, a small chat group so to introduce each other so that uh, they have an online support. So trying to use technology to link people together when they cannot be physically there. So I think that is the that is one way of linking uh, people up. And that uh, creates a lot more support in terms of um, how they to reduce the feeling of isolation and being alone. And I, I realized one thing that it's not just the individual viral load that we're talking about right now. It's actually the communal viral load that needs to be undetectable if we are even going to get a chance uh, to end uh, HIV. Uh, transmission in this world but that uh, that's that, what that's what that's what blows my mind because, my mind because sometimes, sometimes i realize that even until today there are many cases of people presenting late for treatment and uh, it, it it just uh, i just cannot fathom with all the information that's out there with world aids day and uh, international aids memorial day and all the news coverage and everything HIV still tends to be the last uh, thing that they will check off their, their list test. And, uh, and, and sometimes it's also because of the stigma discrimination that they actually don't check for HIV. They check for everything else. And I think that that is the issue because when they present themselves at that stage, it puts a lot of pressure on the doctors and nurses to to save their lives at that point of their health. 
Andrew, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, I, I mean, you've covered a lot of um, um, a lot of subtopics, a lot of issues in uh, there recent, recent, and I, I just want to go through them in a bit more detail. So if I could just go back to late presentation, first of all, uh, we know that late presentation is still common in Malaysia. You mentioned that um, um, in this darn age, you're, 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 you're still surprised that people, despite the awareness messages out there, that people still continue to test very late. Um, we know that, for example, in 2020, and this is based on some data from UNAIDS, that uh, up to 40% uh, of people living with HIV in 2020 presented with a CD4 count of less than 200. Now, I think um, public health uh, has a it has to, um, you know, is accountable for a lot of this, um, and we can certainly do better. Um, and I think it largely is down to initially our our testing and how that certainly could be improved. You know, as you know, a lot of testing within the Malaysian setting, uh, in particular, and also within the region, was uh, traditionally facility-based HIV testing, um, and within government clinics. And there was a lot of um, uh, government primary care. And a lot of, there was a lot of um, uh, uh, anticipated or perceived stigma around uh, accessing these services. Um, and also, uh, you know, I think um, there was initially the services were staffed mainly by healthcare providers with very little community or key populations within the clinic. So uh, it was not really probably the favored facility for testing. Uh, and not, not unless you put communities. Uh, within those settings as well. Naturally, uh, communities are more likely to go to centers where there are other familiar faces there as well. But I think we've improved though. Uh, you know, I think most of our diagnosis has always been um, uh, traditionally, when people come into hospital and they have symptoms um, and they're diagnosed through um, having um, been unwell and having had an opportunistic infection rather than through self-initiated testing. But this is getting better. And the reason why this is getting better is probably uh, because there's more community-based testing now. There's more community involvement in in testing sites um, and and also self-testing. I think self-testing is really the way forward in Malaysia. Um, as you know, we have um, had over the past two years a pilot project involving a uh, Test website, which is a HIV self-testing platform um, to encourage patients to to test through um, uh, this 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 platform. Um, and I think. Uh, the success of it lies largely in in, in that 49% uh, of, of 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 key populations. Um, reaching out to get tested through this platform were first-time testers and who had never tested before. So it is reaching a significant percentage of, of patients who have never uh, accessed other services for testing. So certainly I think, um, you know, um, uh, self-testing is the way forward. 
Um, but but we have issues, of course. We continue to have issues um, around um, uh, facility-based testing with perceived stigma and discrimination. And of course, once again, uh, criminalization of key populations, uh, lack of anonymous testing, which at one point was the preferred form of testing by, by key populations, um, and, 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 and awareness of key populations around where testing sites are. Um, so um, do you, I just want to, so that's one, th you know, uh, just, uh, you know, some of my thoughts on, on, on testing. Um, and uh, maybe you could mention a couple of things before we, 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 we move on to let's, we, we move on to talk about stigma and discrimination. I think you're really, you're absolutely correct, uh, Prof, because uh, previously uh, everyone actually had to go to a, a get tested. But I think uh, that's, this is the uh, COVID uh, pandemic <coughs> actually uh, fast-tracked uh, everyone to, to learn how to do self-testing. And with all the test kits uh, floating out there with uh, COVID tests and everything, people got used to, to doing self-testing. So even though we had uh, HIV self-test before, but I, I, I think uh, that's something that we could probably thank uh, COVID for, is actually increasing the, the acceptability of conducting a self-test uh, in, in the comfort of your own home. And, and, and now it has actually been, become the norm in, in creating it. So when, when we have the public uh, ready to uh, accept, already accepting the, the idea of self-testing, right? Uh, job test is, is something that is very important that can come into play. And I, I think it also helps when, when the person is in a, a small rural town where they can't actually have access to the care and support uh, that uh, big towns do offer, and uh, I, I think it's it's very important. the The only thing that we have to make sure is that uh, when the after the test, they have to be linked up to a a uh, resource. Where even if they are tested negative, there there must be a resource of continued prevention. How to stay free uh, from HIV? Uh, basically, that that uh, is. Uh, make it available to to people to access condom and lube and uh, uh, a website, a number they can call or something like that. So the in, after getting over that initial shock of seeing the the the, the double line, that uh, resource has is even more important because where how do we link them up to a a treatment center where they can get a confirmation test. They can get the baseline done, um, where the where the, where the uh, facility can uh, start their their medical file for them, and also to start them on treatment as soon as possible. So that's where we come into the rapid initiation of of medication for the patients, because when a person is diagnosed with HIV, the, the, a lot of them at this day and age are very well educated. So being uh, connected online, they want to start treatment as possible. And that's the best time to, to initiate them, to, to actually start them on the understanding of it. 
Also, I think another point that you touched was rapid initiation of antiretroviral therapy. And it's a little baby of mine in the sense that um, I've, I've spent a lot of the past two years talking about this and preaching it across the region, um, only because traditionally doctors across the region took their time after being referred a patient who was positive to spend a lot of time uh, doing a lot of blood tests, addressing concurrent needs, which are important. Um, and, you know, in some cases like Malaysia, we had this pharmacy-led initiative of assessing adherence through taking vitamins for a period of two weeks before starting patients on treatment. Um, and, and if they were found to be able to do that, then the, the doctor would then start them on treatment. Now, this is something that I want to say um, right from the start that I did not um, practice at my own center. We were always very quick to start patients on treatment. Um, but, but this is some, some initiatives which still continue and it's very hard to retract, but needs to be addressed nationally, okay? I mean, WHO have made very strong recommendations about uh, initiation antiretroviral therapy after the point of diagnosis within seven days uh, and, and on the same day if patients are ready. So the key is that patients have to be ready. Um, so if there are any ongoing mental health or substance use issues which need to be addressed, they should be addressed. If they can be addressed concurrently and initiating patient on heart at the same time, then by all means. But if, if, it's, if it's thought to be otherwise, then, then of course the issues around mental health and, and, and coming to terms with HIV diagnosis will need to take priority. So it needs to be individualized rather than a whole public uh, health approach of saying that everybody has to start taking antiretroviral therapy as soon as possible after diagnosis, but appreciate that there is a sense of urgency, particularly in our setting. And once they're on antiretroviral treatment, in certainly in the Malaysian setting, they do quite well in terms of viral suppression, but we don't do so well in terms of starting people on antiretroviral therapy, and that's where we dip. And one of the solutions to that is clearly um, delaying the time of diagnosis, uh, delaying the time interval between diagnosis and initiation of antiretroviral therapy. Um, and what I feel it does give to the patient is that sense of urgency that we're addressing their HIV at that very first visit um, with a sense of urgency and I and in my opinion and you can tell me if I'm wrong otherwise that most people want this to be addressed um, yes. at, at their first at their first appointment um, so you know um, uh, so I think I think that's just you know um, I think uh, yet another barrier to try and increase engagement to care, which the region can improve upon, uh, and certainly within our setting, it's now included in our own national guidelines, the new updated uh, HIV guidelines. It's uh, a recommendation, uh, a strong recommendation, as part of the uh, uh, recommend uh, amended uh, HIV treatment guidelines of this year. Um, so, so that's that's a couple of thoughts on um, uh, rapid initiation of antiretroviral therapy. Now, you can't get away with um, 
not talking about stigma and discrimination as well, uh, particularly in a setting like Malaysia as a, as, a, as a barrier to engagement in care for people living with HIV. Um, you know, I mean, Andrew, as, as you're well aware that, you know, the epidemic within our country uh, over the past 10 years has moved uh, essentially from one uh, in which we predominated initially in people who uh, use drugs uh, to that of uh, sexual transmission and uh, more so uh, towards men who have sex with men. And, you know, in, in, in Southeast Asia, Malaysia is considered a conservative Muslim country and has, you know, this has in itself provided challenges and barriers to uh, send key populations such as M, uh, men who have sex with men and transgender populations accessing care. And of course, there's the, 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 the human rights element to it and the legal barriers, uh, you know, and fears of uh, accessing services and disclosing uh, their sexuality may lead to potential criminalization, you know, of same-sex relationships, particularly in countries like Malaysia and Indonesia in the region. Although this doesn't really happen uh, on the ground, but, you know, there are, there are always concerns. Um, and this is sometimes reported in the media in terms of, uh, um, you know, people getting, um, uh, in, in terms of raids of certain uh, uh, venues where, 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 where key populations um, um, get together. But I feel that overall, despite these challenges, we have managed to work around it both by working with the community and the healthcare providers. We've managed to provide, uh, in terms of healthcare, some, uh, a number of key population-friendly primary sector clinics, um, which are trusted uh, by the community, um, and also certain tertiary hospital settings like mine, which I feel uh, is key population-friendly as well, uh, where there is also a lot of visibility of of key populations uh, within the staff uh, and also within the um, um, uh, wider network of the community uh, of of of, uh, of of the people who support the clinic um, and 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 of course the use as mentioned previously uh, the use of peer navigators of peer support workers um, trying to help pa patients navigate through the clinical setting um, which is very common as well in Asia uh, because as you say you know having this uh, initial diagnosis of being HIV is, is can be very devastating to to some uh, to a lot of people initially and 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 added to that the concern around how to navigate a very complicated system uh, to access your care for the very first time um, uh, it helps tremendously um, in 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 addressing access to care to services Definitely, when you talk about statement discrimination, a lot of statement discrimination, unfortunately, comes from institutionalized, uh, you know, whether it's from government rhetoric, uh, certain political leaders who want mileage, but they talk about LGBT issue, issues, uh, and it's the easy target for them. And, 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 that's, and that's frustrating because what happens is that that drives people to even... Uh, go further underground to 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 disappear upon diagnosis because they they fear that that uh, that that stigma discrimination that may or may not be real because the thing is that nowadays we have so many well trained doctors and if they were to take that first step to reach out to us the uh, us NGOs 
we would be able to link them to a healthcare facility where the, the doctors and nurses are, are, we know are comfortable with handling the key populations. So that's why we, we are an intermediate link between the patients and um, the healthcare settings. And also we play a very important role to keep them on, on um, uh, over the years. And to deal with all those things that <clears throat> the nitty gritty that actually do, does not concern the medical part of it, the emotional, the moral support and everything that they need. And that eventually talks about, uh, comes to preventing them from defaulting, preventing them from, from ending up with uh, good for loss to follow up uh, on, on treatment. And Ultimately, our, our, our final goal is to, to halt onward transmissions. So it has to be successful because treatment now is getting more and more advanced. We're getting more range of uh, new um, ARVs coming on the, on, on the market and getting approved by the ministries for distribution. So the, the community who are linked to, to us NGOs are, are excited about it. They, like like the moment they heard about uh, medication like deletogravir, uh, everybody wanted to be on it. The demand was there, but the thing is that the system was just not ready to handle that kind of demand because there were so many things structurally to put in place to even get it uh, on the table, to even provide uh, the it as an arsenal for a, a, a doctor from from the Ministry of Health to actually prescribe that medication. And, you know, as you know, Malaysia is in that very difficult position, very much like Thailand as well, uh, being in an, uh, an upper middle income country, which essentially means that we have a lot of patent protections around originator drugs, um, and we have uh, less access to generic uh, drugs, like um, unlike a lot of um, uh, other countries um, in Africa. And so, although we have access to generic drugs, but these are often delayed after many, many years. Um, uh, and so that can be problematic uh, for our patients because um, some of the, uh, when, when we think about transitioning to newer drugs, uh, patients may have to pay for it. Now, also just maybe uh, to give some background and, and, and just to reiterate what you've mentioned, uh, first-line antiretroviral therapy in our setting is free, and often that's the case across many parts of the country in, in the in the region. Uh, but when when you move on to your second-line antiretroviral regimen, uh, this is not free, and it's um, it can be quite expensive, and it's only partially subsidised by the government. Um, and 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 a lot of first-line antiretroviral therapy uh, within Malaysia is still. Uh, efavirenz-based, um, which is in a way uh, disappointing uh, because uh, dolotegravir has been around for some time. But we now have access to generic dolotegravir um, 
only very recently through um, ex, uh, through uh, to generic dolichogravir, although originated dolichogravir has been around for some time, but uptake has been low because of its cost. Um, and the reason why we have access to generic dolichogravir is through this um, a new initiative of an expanded voluntary licensing agreement, uh, which was offered to uh, four different countries, four countries of which Malaysia was one of the countries. Um, and it, we've been waiting for generic dollar Tegravir for some time. And it's been in the guidelines and WHO and other guidelines uh, for some time now, and only included in Malaysian guidelines as, as uh, an alternative first line um, uh, more recently. Um, and, and, and the reason why I bring this up is also because uh, as, as a healthcare provider and as a, a physician offering patients um, treatment, you naturally want to offer them the best treatment available. And not that efavirenz is, is a bad drug. Efavirenz is very good uh, at virally, at suppressing the virus, but you know, it has those unf unfortunate side effects of raised lipids and with that increase in cardiovascular risk. Uh, some people continue to complain of uh, minor CNS side effects for years after initiating antiretroviral therapy. There are concerns around uh, uh, worsening depression or mental health issues in, in, in patients with pre-existing mental health issues. Um, and, and so, you, you know, because of these, of these issues, um, uh, an opportunity to switch to a drug which does not have these uh, side effects uh, and one which we perceive to be uh, metabolically better, um, such as dolotegravir, is certainly welcome. Um, and, and so therefore, you know, I always call it the curse of the middle income country, where Malaysia is often perceived <laughs> yes. uh, as you know, as being able to afford all these drugs, but patient, but on the ground, it has not been so good in terms of access to newer drugs. Yeah, uh, it's it's true because when we talk about the access to to new ARTs, that's uh, the the hot topic on on everyone's lips is the uh, long acting cabotegravir as as prevention. So yeah, definitely. Um, that's the next next thing that everyone is is being focused on, but for for those of us on the ground, we still talk about things like how do we get differentiated services to our our clients, how to give uh, the the access of uh, of treatment to a, a person who is a, a sex worker versus somebody who is MSM versus somebody who's transgender because their needs are totally different. Yeah, the thing is that we talk a lot about the importance uh, of the role of uh, volunteers like me. Uh, the, but the, the reality is that the organizations, the um, NGOs need uh, to be funded, need to yes. be supported need, need to, to to because the thing is that there is there is a a movement that uh, uh, that every time the the NGOs try to 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 do a little bit better to help our our 
clients, you know, um, to to help them on on treatment, uh, understanding the treatment literacy. I think there's always seems to be a, a, a backlash of of funding cuts, and and even surprisingly, uh, there are some uh, medical uh, personnel who feel that we may be taking the jobs away from them, and and they feel slighted that that uh, why, why is the NGO doing this? Why is a patient doing this? And they don't see the importance of speaking in a language that is simplified and made available because we do know that the doctors and nurses cannot be uh, available 24-7 because they even they need the rest. And we've seen that with COVID, how easily it is for doctors and nurses to be burnt out. So if we in the NGOs... Uh, sector can keep our phones on 24-7 to answer the calls when the emergency happens. We, we, we play the role of, of the emergency services um, and we help with the, the, the emotional uh, ups and downs of the, the patients on a daily basis. I mean, we are the ones who can uh, hang on to a call for for an hour, an hour and a half, calming a patient down who who's newly diagnosed and who's calling for help and just ranting on. We are the ones who actually listen to them offload every single thing that's gone wrong in their life. And, and the thing is that the doctors and nurses do not have the luxury. When we talk about uh, treatment and prevention, we, we, we talk so much about the access to medication, the, the, the structural importance of, of having policies in place, of having the, the, the right people on, on board who understand uh, the goal of uh, ending AIDS by 2030. But the thing is that when, when for those of us on the ground, we work with the reality uh, on a day-to-day basis of people who are continually underestimating their own risk factors uh, on a daily basis of getting exposed to the virus and stuff like that. And I think that needs to be improved uh, in terms of uh, how do we get the conversation restarted again for people to negotiate condom use or even to, for, for the most at-risk population to understand what PrEP is about. I, I think these are all uh, tools that we, we have in our arsenal. It's just that uh, we need to learn how to use them a lot better while waiting for the next thing to come on board. So thank you very much, Prof, for your time. Thanks very much, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and sharing this platform with you, providing your insights and solutions to some of the um, pertinent issues around barriers to patient healthcare within the region. So I'd like to thank Clinical Care Options and you once again for being on this podcast. Thank you very much to Andrew and Iskander and thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics, including more regionally focused episodes on what patients want in HIV treatment and prevention. Thank you and have a great day.